0: If you want to know what William Campbell and those people were like at King's Mountain, just think of today's Special Forces.
1: You are listening to History a platform for historians, authors, and curators to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are with John Beeks, historian and writer extraordinaire. John, welcome. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that you've been working on here lately.
0: Thanks very much, Eric. I started writing about uh, the Maryland line, uh, and particularly John Eager Howard, the hero of the Battle of Cowpens, and I studied him and found out he was a young farm boy from Maryland that went into the Army at age 23 and became a terrific soldier within about six or seven years. That led me to an introduction to a man named Arthur Holland Williams, who was a Marylander and a, a rifleman in the first day of uh, the Continental Army, June 14, 1775. He went to Boston, participated in the siege, went down to New York there. He was at the Battle of um, Fort Washington. George Washington stood at Fort Lee across the, uh, the uh, Hudson River and saw the rifleman defending Fort Washington. and He never forgot it. It was a heroic stand there by those riflemen, and the deputy commander of that was Arthur Holland Williams. So Williams was a strong, healthy young man at that point in time, but he was captured when they lost Fort Washington. He was put in prison and contacted tuberculosis. So one of the things that this magnificent young man and terrific soldier wound up dying of tuberculosis at age 45, he gave his life to the country.
1: Was he an American?
0: He was an American. He was from Maryland. Okay. Both Howard and Williams were Marylanders. Williamsport, Maryland, is named for Otto Holland Williams. Okay. And he's one, one soldier with kind of the whole story. So I, he was a rifleman, I told you that. He uh, was a heroic as a rifleman. He was captured. He was a prisoner. And while he was a prisoner, he was made colonel of the Maryland 6th Regiment. While a prisoner. While a prisoner. So that tells you what the Maryland troops thought of him. He came back after Valley Forge. He was at the Battle of Monmouth. And in the hard winter in Morristown in 1779 80, he um, became chief of staff when Alexander Campbell, the adjutant general, took leave. So for uh, several months, Otho Holland Williams, as the adjutant general of the army, worked with George Washington every day. And he became, he's already a rifleman, he's a regimental commander, now he's adjutant general. From that day forward, he became both a regimental commander and the adjutant general of the Maryland line and he worked directly with the leader who was assigned then, which was a man named Baron Decalb. So Williams and Howard, these young men with this 56-year-old German-born French officer DeKalb who came to America with Lafayette, worked together and then went through the Southern Campaign. So they all went to... Camden after marching from Marstown, New Jersey into the South and Charleston was lost and so forth. DeKalb really died heroically after the Battle of Camden. He showed what a military leader does. People are familiar with that battle. On the right was the Maryland Line and the Delawares under DeKalb, on the left was militia. The militia saw the British coming and their, you know, their drums, their bagpipes, their long bayonets and they fled. So DeKalb and his group got surrounded. DeKalb ended that day with 11 wounds, three, three bullet wounds, eight cuts from bayonets and sabers. Fortunately for America, Williams and Howard and a number of the uh, Maryland troops got off through the swamps and the right and lived the fight again. DeKalb died three days later, but I believe his contribution to the Maryland line continued to be heroic in the South had a lot to do with his training and discipline, day in and day out for two years.
1: I know we're talking about uh, Arthur Williams, and, but you mentioned Baron Cab When he died, uh, right before he died, did he not make some some statement that went to the heart of who Baron DeCab was? Did he not say something like, uh, I die a, a death that I always wanted, the uh, death of a man fighting for the it, rights of man? It, it,
0: it is written that he said that. Uh, he wrote, he dictated two wonderful letters how proud he was of the Maryland troops that had served under him. Because you know, he was, you know, they didn't have transfusions in those days. He just basically bled to death over three days. And he, that statement was attributed to him. I believe the uh, words were kind of words that DeKalb felt. I'm not sure he would have used language quite that flowery. But that's attributed to him. And I have no objection to people using that. But I, I just think of him and what he, he was a very dignified. Right. He was a soldier soldier is what he was. Right. And, um, and
1: you had said prior to our recording that he was really a baron.
0: He was a baron. I mean,
1: uh, contrary to some of the, the other historians out there. Many, really
0: many, artists. many writers have called him a self-styled baron. He yeah, was yeah. a baron. I discovered that in my research. There was a letter from—the uh, uh, French king wanted to help America win.
1: Right.
0: Lafayette is a 19-year-old, the wealthiest man in France. But he, and he wanted to come to America. So they wanted to the help him. So basically, DeKalb, this 56-year-old veteran, proven soldier, came with him and a group of officers. Lafayette was, he, he bought the ship that they came in, the, the, the uh, Victoire. They landed in Georgetown on the passage from France to America. DeKalb taught uh, Lafayette English as best he could. DeKalb was fluent in French, German, and English. They landed in Georgetown. They went to Charleston, spent a week in Charleston together, and then uh, on to the war. And of course, Lafayette became uh, almost a godson to uh, Washington eventually, which is interesting. That's an interesting part of the story, in my view, because George Washington didn't like Frenchmen. Right. He had fought him in the French and Indian War, and he was really kind of suspicious of French. He had a bias. He did no question. But Lafayette helped turn him. They were both Masons. That helped. Lafayette agreed to serve without pay, and he didn't demand a, uh, a command. Right. So he endeared himself very quickly, and it, it softened up the Americans toward the French officers. Some of whom had come over early and were pretty arrogant and demanded money and sure. all that. Right. But the cow was a was a wonderful soldier, tremendous experience, and a, and a, a fine gentleman. He was not gifted at individual command. I think DeKalb like being one of a group of generals, but somebody at the top making the decision. So as he marched south, it became more and more obvious that that's why Gates wound up taking command. But so, a magnificent battlefield soldier. So where
1: was Williams uh, in the hierarchy of that command structure? If Gates was in charge of the Southern Army coming south and DeKalb was over the Maryland line. Yeah, DeKalb Williams? took
0: it from Morristown down into North Carolina. When Charleston fell, the senior officer in the South was a German-born French officer, said, so, hey, we've got to get an American, so they sent Gates down. DeKalb agreed to serve under Gates, but Williams had been Adjutant General under DeKalb, and he remained Adjutant General under Gates, and Williams was double-hatted. He had the Adjutant General's job, plus he commanded the 6th Maryland Regiment. So it was really uh, Gates at the top at the Battle of Camden, DeKalb in command of Delaware and and Maryland troops and Williams serving as double hatted as Adjutant General and commander of the sixth Maryland. Um, So, you know, the Maryland line, uh, there's a gentleman who wrote a book called The Washington's Immortals, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. If you go back to the beginning, this is not the, the campaign in the South, but you know, at Gowanus Creek at the Battle of Long Island, the Maryland line saved the American army. They had been surprised. About 250 Marylanders under Mordecai Gist, who was a fine young soldier, and there were like 1,500 British attacking them and moving them back. 250 men attacked them again and again, and they had to retreat across Gowanna Swamp of 250 men. Nine survived under, under Gist but they stopped enough of that attack that Washington was able to reform his lines and get away in the night uh, earlier. So from the very beginning of the war, for whatever reason, Maryland, I think their militia system and so forth, and some pretty good military leaders made a contribution all the way. But in the South, of course, it was at Camden, then Howard at uh, Cowpens. He won a silver medal from Congress for that. Daniel Morgan, of course, won a gold medal. He was a genius that figured out how to use militia. And then Guilford Courthouse, then the siege at 96, then Hopkirks Hill, and then out on Utah Springs. In each one of those, the Maryland line was very, very prominent, very capable. And that, that's what got me started. I live in Maryland, and I realized that there wasn't a lot of information about. Their contribution to the, the Revolutionary War, and I didn't know anything about the war in the South, and sort of started looking into this.
1: It is interesting, as I have uh, kind of worked my way through uh, some of the history, that uh, you don't hear a lot of the, about the secondary heroes or the, the tertiary uh, moments that happen. Right. Uh, so I appreciate you stepping forward and, and talking about a lot of those. You you said. You've written a book about bearing the cab. You've written, tell us some of the other books you've
0: written. Well, one about Arthur Holland Williams, which uh-huh. again, I think, Light Horse Harry Lee, which was a lot of fun. He's controversial even to this day, um, but he was a terrific soldier. I, my, my interest has been to find people that were really superb in combat, real no kidding battlefield leaders worthy of respect and remembrance who, who are forgotten. And for whatever problems Light Horse Harry Lee had later in life, he was a magnificent legion commander. Sure, sure. And you know, when George Washington was president, we have his, all his papers, of course. He had to put together an army to do the um, Whiskey Rebellion in 1792. In 1797, he's the one. Won. It looks like we're going to have a war with the French. So he has all these notes where he's writing about all the officers that might be people that he could bring into the army. Every single time he wanted light Horse Harry Lee to be the commander. he trusted him more than any of them because of his brilliance and skill and thoughtfulness and all this. big problem was he was younger than virtually all his other generals so if he pointed Lee to be the commander the older ones wouldn't serve under him right. so uh, I just I'm glad I got to write about Lee I, I think that I focus on the Revolutionary War part of his life, and he made a big contribution. Uh, and so did William, so did Howard, sure. and so did Baron DeKalb, and now I've written recently about William Campbell, and I'm, that's kind of a new venue. The one thing I want to get people to think about there, we all talk about, we're talking about Battle of Lexington and Concord, Bunker Hill, you know, it's all Massachusetts, then it's all New York, then it's Trenton and Princeton, and then it's Monmouth, it's all New Jersey, Mass. Out here in the frontier, first of all, William Campbell and Isaac Shelby and John Sevier lived in a war zone. They were at war every single day of their life. Their homes were built like forts. They had slits in the walls for rifles. Then they had five miles away where a group of families could get in a larger fort. There was never a year when a group around southwestern Virginia frontier where some people weren't killed by invaders, either the Shawnee or the Cherokee. The Shawnee were up in Ohio, the Cherokee were in Tennessee. So they were used to being in combat. And the British had put a proclamation line down to the top of the Allegheny Mountains. They didn't want Americans going west of that line. So you had these Scotch-Irish who were Sort of combative, and they saw that land in Kentucky, and they saw the pass through in the Cumberland Gap, Gap, and boy, they wanted, they wanted that land. I mean, they have almost insatiable desire to grow. Meantime, the Cherokee and the Shawnee, they've had it for centuries. They think it's theirs. They don't want to own it individually. They want to hunt on it and all that. So I mean, it, it's 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 inevitable conflict. So they live that way. So when they can to King's Mountain, which was really, really important October the 7th, 1780. They had been at war every day their whole life. They were given a rifle when they were 10 years old and learned to shoot it from that point in time. They knew how to live in the woods. They had to sneak quietly. They knew how to scout and range and all those kinds of skills. An incredible marksman with a weapon, the rifle, with a rifle barrel, that could be accurate at three hundred yards where a musket was hardly accurate at all at eighty yards, so it was a it was a gathering of really really capable woodsmen and if if you want to know what William Campbell and those people were like at King's Mountain just think of today's special forces hmm. they could live in the woods they could they could you know hunt camp well they march
1: certainly weren't uh hampered by baggage trains
0: and- Absolutely not. The other thing i just try to point out briefly is they they made this couple hundred mile march in 13 days, 15, 16 miles a day on average. The the, the horses and the care of the horses, you need 20 pounds of fodder for a horse every day. You need four pounds of food for a man. And they, they figured out how to do that. And those horses were tough. I mean, but the men knew how to care for them. As well. The logistical
1: devils in the details type of thing, and and how they were able to do that is is uh, you know you say they weren't military men, but it certainly had a military air about it.
0: Well, and, yeah, no, they, it was it was a they didn't have artillery, they didn't have cavalry, right. right, and it was perfect for the mission. Now, you know, we lost Savannah, we lost Charleston, we lost the battle of Camden, so. Cornwallis is sitting there ready. The only reason he didn't go into North Carolina didn't have enough food yet. He wanted to wait for the harvest. And so he was building a depot at Camden, getting ready to move forward. And all the people were saying, well, look, the British are going to win. I'll sign up to help them. And then this thing happens at Kings Mountain. And immediately, and it's all in the, you know, Tarleton wrote about it, Rawdon wrote about it, Cornwallis wrote about it. Immediately, the Americans said, hey, Maybe we can win this thing after all. Kings Mountain really changed the mentality of the people in the South. And the tactics of it, I'm not an expert on the battle, but they call it a cordon. What a perfect way to, they surrounded them. They surrounded that mountain. And every time uh, Ferguson wanted to attack down the west side, the people from the east side would be shooting at his back. So... It was a brilliant, brilliant. However, they figured out how to do that, uh, and again, they wouldn't have been if they stood toe to toe at Camden. They wouldn't have been nearly as effective as they were out there in the woods at King's Mountain. It was a brilliant, brilliant move. They were great leaders. They really, really were, and uh, it did it did turn the tide. I don't think there's any question about that. And the mindset of the people in the South.
1: Yeah. So, Arthur Williams, let's get back to him for just a, just a few sure. minutes. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he was the second in charge of the Army of the South with under Gates, right? So, uh, who did, did is he the one who actually met with uh, Thomas Sumter and met with Francis Marion, or did they get led into the tent with Gates? I mean, did was Gates the one who interviewed all of these partisan fighters, or what was William's role in that?
0: So... One of the things that I found, Marion's key aide was Peter Ory, H-O-R-O-Y, And Ory survived to write a book. And uh, it's one of those unfortunate books in that there's a lot of truth in it, because Ory really, it was his real experience. He was in the meetings. But the co-publisher was Parson Weems. And Parson Weems is the guy that wrote Washington to a silver dollar across the Potomac, and I couldn't tell a lie when I cut down the cherry tree. Parson Weems was a good entrepreneur and a good salesman, but he sort of took the truth and embellished it way too much. So it's hard to tell where Ori's book is really on track and where it isn't, but after Charleston fell, Ori and Marion were the only Continental officers left in South Carolina. And they wondered, okay, they're coming down from the north. Let's go up there and see what the heck we're going to be able to do here. And they met with DeKalb. This is before Gates had command.
1: Okay. Is this in Hillsborough
0: where they met with him? Uh, North of Hillsborough. North of Hillsborough. North of Hillsborough. I forget the name of the place where they met. But uh, he had a camp. DeKalb had been Quartermaster General for a big army. And he knew... How much fodder you need, how much ammunition you need, how much powder you need, how much lead you need. He was trying to accumulate eight days of provisions so he could move on into South Carolina. So he had stopped and was trying to get that organized. He was having trouble communicating with the governors of Virginia and North Carolina and all this. And, um, but anyway, the thing that I love so much is Marion, Ori, and DeKalb immediately took to each other, immediately took to each other. And the cow would sit around in the evening with his pipe, and he told a story that we know he told up in, in Valley Forge of his father, who was 82 as a woodsman. He told that story, so I, I saw it in these two different places. The point I'm making is these warriors, Marion and Ori, and the cow took to each other immediately. Now, now Williams was in that circle, this is before Gates came down. The first assignment was in a partisan warfare group in Europe, so he understood Marion. He understood yeah. how to use him, right. and he understood. Look, this is a valuable resource for us. Let's get him out there ranging and scouting and keeping us informed. That kind of a thing. You have the impression from Williams's writing when Gates took over. That Gates was kind of happy to let's send them out away from the army here. You know they're kind of scraggly looking. They don't shine their shoes particularly well, and all that.
1: Was Gates a, for lack of a better term, was he a peacock? Was he was he uh, just full of himself? What was the deal? Well, I,
0: was I, it about a class Gates. Thing. You know, if you know Gates's history, the three most experienced officers in America in 1775 were. Charles Lee, George Washington, and Horatio Gates. Gates had been a captain in the British Army. He'd actually uh, been, been taking a report back to the king of one of the victories okay. in, in the islands. He was a competent, he retired into Shepherdstown, Maryland. And Washington, I learned this in the uh, Williams book, no, in the Lee book. Just before he went to the Second Continental Congress in 1775, Washington invited Charles Lee to have dinner at Mount Vernon, and then he invited Gates. And when Charles Lee had dinner with him, Light Horse Harry was there. So, you know, Washington went to the Second Continental Congress wearing a uniform. Everybody says, Why did you do that? Well, two weeks before, he had been having dinner with two of the most experienced officers in America. He was planning. And Gates became adjutant General. So when Washington went up to Boston, the adjutant General was Gates, and he was great at it. You know, get everybody organized, make sure we do the guards properly, make sure people wear their uniforms properly. yeah, you yeah, know a bit f- probably fussy. So the war goes on, and um, he wins a battle. he's in command at the Battle of Saratoga. Now yes, John Beeks. Benedict Arnold and, and uh, Morgan, Daniel Morgan, won the Battle of Saratoga, and Gates was sitting in the tent back here while those guys fought the battle and won it, but he got the credit. So when he comes south, he's the victor of Saratoga, you know, of course he's proud and all that, and he kind of has a lot of faith in himself as, as a military commander, and he wasn't a battlefield guy at all. He just didn't have the skills. For, he didn't decide quickly. He didn't react well. He didn't keep the picture. So a real warrior like the cow, you know, they only worked together a couple of weeks, so you can't really say how that relationship worked in many, many ways. But there's a lot of hints that Gates wasn't perceptive enough to understand that these scraggly looking partisans from South Carolina, you know with their scraggly horses or whatever gosh let's get them away from my army i think he would have done that and not realizing now with sumter somehow or another he had a faith in sumter i'm not sure why exactly i don't think they met directly but they corresponded a lot right before the battle that he sent a hundred continentals and some artillery off to support sumter who was doing a raid so for some reason, he was more inclined to support Sumter than he was. But he didn't understand what Marion could do like DeKalb did. DeKalb knew exactly what they could right, do. Right. This whole thing
1: is fascinating to me. You've covered a, a wide breadth of areas within the Revolution. And how can people get a hold of your books?
0: Well, you can find them on Amazon. But the, the actual publisher is Heritage Books. Uh, heritagebooks.com, I think, is a good place to, to get a hold of them. and There are a lot of libraries in the South and that kind of a thing, but uh, Heritage Books would be a good place to do it. And them.
1: among the books that you've written, I, I know DeKalb, Light Horse Harry Lee, you've got one on William Campbell. Yeah, the Mountain. most
0: recent one is William Campbell in the American Revolution. And uh, it talks about, it's got the title, Commander Rifleman at Kings Mountain and Guilford Courthouse.
1: You're starting to delve into uh, some of the tertiary or secondary heroes there that... Uh, that really kind of lit up the stage here in the South.
0: No question about it. And, you know, it takes a lot to win a war against probably the most efficient army on earth at that time, the British Army. And these people's first priority was not to, to be soldiers. It was to run their homes and take care of their families and those kinds of things. But they managed to pull together and develop enough military, it was the finest military organization on earth in 1781. And the way they developed it and learned and became great military leaders is a terrific story, I think.
1: Outstanding. Well, thank you so much, John.